Thank you, John and Karen, and welcome, friends, and those of you who are watching today. We have been in a series called New Beginnings where we're looking at the days of creation to discover how we can have a new beginning, and I would just like to say that we need a new beginning. We have been in the midst of what the Hebrews called tovu vavohu, it's a darkness and a chaos that was at the world's earth beginning, but um, this week has been darkness and chaos. Many of us watched a video of George Floyd pleading for his life as an officer mercilessly knelt on his neck, using his body weight to constrict and then stop the breath in his body which ended his life. Many had hoped and even prayed that Eric Garner in 2014 would be the last black man we had to witness pleading for his life in this same manner, saying, I can't breathe, as an officer exerted deadly force. There's a saying that crisis reveals who we are, who we really are. It's an El Salvadorian theologian, John Soberino, that wrote after a natural disaster devastated his country that said, an earthquake is a catastrophe, but it's also a bearer of truth. It's an x-ray of the country in its many dimensions, and it reveals truth that many people would rather keep hidden. At this time, it seems like there's a mirror being held up to our country. This season of crisis is an x-ray. It's revealing who we are, who we really are. So will we have eyes to see what is being revealed? John and Karen wrote or spoke uh, two scriptures. Both scriptures reference this person named Abraham. Now, In the Galatians verses, it says that we're one in Christ, all children of God through faith, that there is no Jew nor Gentile, nor slave nor free, nor male or female, that these divisions have been made null in Christ. But then he adds, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and an heir of a promise. He's trying to help certain people who are struggling to see their common unity in Christ. And so he connects them to Abraham's seed. So too, in the, second, or in the Luke passage, Luke, or Jesus tells a story of two people who don't see their common unity. And he also connects them to Abraham. So we're going to look at these two stories and see how they connect but even more how they connect to us today. And maybe we'll see a new beginning for all of us. Jesus said, There was a certain rich man who was splendidly clothed in purple and fine linen who lived each day in luxury. At the gate lay a poor man named Lazarus who was covered in sores. And as Lazarus lay there longing for scraps from the rich man's table, the dogs would come and lick his open sores. So in this story, Jesus introduces two characters. He doesn't name the certain rich man, but we're going to call him Armani. It seems like an appropriate name. Armani 
is the guy who has the walk-in closet. He's got clothes for every occasion. He's got an excessive amount of wealth, which allows him to buy the most expensive clothes, the fine linens and the purple cloth. In fact, it, it kind of sounds like he had more food than he could eat, even servants who had more than enough. He lived in a gated community and felt safe every time he walked outside. Now, the second character is this person named Lazarus. Now, Lazarus, Lazarus is named. He's, his name means God helps or one whom God helps. And at first, it doesn't look like God is helping Lazarus. We're not sure how Lazarus got to Armani's gate, but it appears as though Lazarus is not strong enough or healthy enough to walk. He's sick, he's poor, he's unemployed. He's probably uninsured too because he can't get medical treatment. He has these open sores and scabs that cover his body. When Job, in the book of Job, has the same condition, he cursed the day of his birth. And he's painfully hungry and doesn't even have the strength to keep the street dogs from licking his wounds. Now, Jesus doesn't indicate how long this lasts. Was it their whole lives? What did Armani say to his children about Lazarus who lay before his gate? And what did society say about Lazarus? We're not told. We're, we're then just having Jesus cut to the next scene of life after death. In verse 22, it says, Finally, the poor man died and was carried beside the, by the angels to sit beside Abraham at the heavenly banquet. The rich man also died and was buried. See, both men have died. But Armani received a proper burial and funeral. He likely had it prepaid to not trouble his family. But Lazarus just died. No burial is listed. He probably couldn't afford one anyway. I never thought about before I read this story before this week, what happens to people who can't afford a burial? Are they just thrown away? Are they considered disposable? Jesus continues the story in verse 23. He went to the place of the dead and there in torment, he saw Abraham in the far distance with Lazarus at his side. And then the rich man shouted, Father Abraham, have some pity. Send Lazarus here to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. I am in anguish in these flames. According to the way that Jesus tells the story, heaven and hell are not really that far apart. They're close enough to have a conversation, even if one has to shout. And now Lazarus appears to be the one living in the lap of luxury, quite literally sitting next to Abraham, who is considered the richest man of his day. In fact, Abraham had so much wealth that he probably made Armani look poor. But Armani's not poor. He's in excruciating pain. In fact, it appears as if he's living in hell. Now, how did he end up in hell? 
Was he damned because he was wealthy? Because there are a lot of people in the Bible who are wealthy and also godly and good and generous. Abraham was certainly one of those people. And Jesus does specifically warn against wealth. More specifically, he warns against the love of money. 1 Timothy 6.10 tells us, For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. I think wealth can produce a false sense of security and a self-importance in us. It can keep us from relying on God and from accepting God's invitations. Now, what do I mean by invitations? See, every day, Armani left his house and walked out his gate and almost had to step over Lazarus. Armani knew his name. He calls to him from hell, but he never saw Lazarus before he died. Now, maybe Armani was more concerned with his money or his status or his dinner parties than he was about the petty problems of poor people. And if you think I'm stretching the story too much, I want you to look at Abraham's reply to Armani. In verses 25 and 26, Abraham says to him, Son, remember that during your lifetime you had everything you wanted, but Lazarus had nothing. So now here, so now he is here being comforted, and you are here in anguish. And besides, there is a great chasm separating us. No one can cross over to you from here, and no one can cross over to us from there. Armani was a child of Abraham. He is one of Abraham's seeds and an heir according to the promise. Abraham calls him son. Armani, like Abraham, had wealth and faith, comfort and privilege. And Armani was counting his status as a child of Abraham to get him into God's kingdom. I think Armani is shocked that he's in hell. He had the right religious answers and even now cares that his family doesn't end up just like him. But Abraham says to Armani, besides, there's this great chasm between us that's set between you and us and you can't cross over. See, before Lazarus died, there was not a great chasm between us. Armani, you just chose not to cross over it. It was a small chasm. You could have crossed over to bring comfort or relief or even friendship to Lazarus. That is Abraham's invitation and challenge. I don't think Armani was a bad guy. He had faith, he had family, he had money, just like many of us listening today. None of that was what led him to sin and to hell. I think his sin was his self-focus that paralyzed him from practicing solidarity. That's a mouthful. I'm going to say it again. His self-focus paralyzed him from practicing solidarity. Now, practicing solidarity is with is, is the practice of standing with and sharing in the suffering of those who are devalued or deemed invisible. 
It was the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. who said about the same passage of Scripture, Luke 16, there is nothing more tragic than to find a person who can look at the anguish and and deplorable circumstances of fellow human beings and not be moved. Armani cares more about his brothers than his fellow brother Lazarus. Lazarus is the hungry human that Armani would not feed. Lazarus is the sick man that Armani would not visit. He is the naked human that Armani would not clothe. And according to Matthew 25, when he tells the story of the sheep and the goats, that it's Armani who is not fit for the kingdom of God. He's only fit for a place of torment. So what about us? Will we cross over the chasms in our life before they're set and we're unable to pass them? See, I think we choose not to cross over when we think of statements like, in 1820, this would have been an acceptable statement. Thomas Jefferson made it, that slavery is a necessary evil. No one would say that that's a, that's a true statement today, that that's a good statement. They would say that's racist, but in 1820, that was acceptable. Or in even up to 1940, people who said, we're better off if our schools and our neighborhoods are separate but equal. No, people deem that as racism today. But today, black people are 2.7 times more likely to be killed by police than white people, and unarmed black Americans are roughly five times as likely as unarmed white Americans to be shot or killed by police. And the imprison rate for a black person having a drug offense is 5.8 times higher than it is for whites. I don't know what you call these, but they're acts of racism. And they sound like People like Armani who have comfort and privilege and they're walking over their brother or sister like Lazarus. In 1963, almost 57 years ago, again, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. declared that we can never be satisfied as long as the Negro is the victim of unspeakable horrors of police violence. Friends, I'm not condoning the riots or the looting or the destruction of our cities surrounding George Floyd's death, but the protests are an outpouring of unheard and dismissed pain Because George Floyd's death is not some isolated incident. It's just one more example of a saturated history of systematic racism and injustice that is in our country. It's clear that this week's events are part of the cost of our silence as believers and our complicity to this. We have to see this history And not only lament it, but confess our complicit role in the church and the history of racism. We've got to go beyond just lamenting and confessing 
and we have to cross over. Crisis reveals character. Who we are. Who we really are. And as Christ followers, we must cross over. Abraham was the first person to cross over. That's what being a Hebrew means. When he left the eastern side of the Persian Gulf and went across or around the the Arabian desert, he ended up in a place with people of different ethnicity. And they called him Abraham or Abram the Hebrew, the one who crosses over. He was known for his actions, not for his skin color and not where he came from. Can the same be true of us? Abraham was blessed by God and he blessed the people around him, even if they looked different. What if this pandemic, this racial pandemic, friends, is the opportunity for us to expose our national sin and stand in solidarity with our fellow humans and children of God, image bearers of the Creator? What if those of us who are white Christians will practice solidarity with our Christian brothers and sisters of color more than we do white non-Christians? What if the Bible's really true and that in Christ we no longer segregate by race or ethnicity We no longer separate by socioeconomic status or privilege, and we no longer separate by gender, commit acts of sexism all over the place, but we truly become one in Christ, one humanity, one children of God, and heirs of that promise from Abraham. What will you do? What will I do to cross over that chasm before it's too late? Friends, this is not an addition to the good news. This is the good news. Jesus crossed over that chasm for all of us. Regardless of where we live or the size of our bank account or the color of our skin, we are all like Lazarus. We are poor We are sick. We are laying on the gates outside of God's house. We don't have the status to sit at God's table. There is nothing we can do to earn a place at God's table. No, none of us. That's why the Bible says that all sin and fall short of the glory of God. But God is not the rich man. He is not like Armani. He is not so self-absorbed or too paralyzed to practice solidarity. No, the good news of Jesus is that God sent Jesus Christ to cross the chasm. He was the one that was so concerned for the last and the lost and the least that he crossed the chasm from heaven to earth, that he crossed the chasm from power to poverty, from divinity to humanity, from life to death. Jesus gave his life to restore us with God. This is why Paul says in his second letter to the Corinthians that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. In verse 21, 
God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's good news that Jesus gives his new life and eternal life through his sacrifice. But it's not just news for us alone. It's for us to share with others. That's the mechanism the message of reconciliation for all of the others. He says that is the righteousness of God. That's what we do. And that's what will restore communities with Christ. We need Jesus now more than ever. And we need Jesus followers who will cross over. Will you? Will you pray with me? Father, as we consider the week's events around Minneapolis and St. Paul, and as we consider, God, months and years and decades and centuries of events throughout the United States, God, we confess our inaction We confess that we have not practiced solidarity, that we have not stood with or shared in the sufferings of all people. God, we pray for our brothers and sisters of color who have silently endured years of suffering, injustice, and racism. God, we commit ourselves to practice solidarity. We commit ourselves to crossing over. We commit ourselves to being your message and your messengers of reconciliation. We can't do this in our own strength, God, but we can do this because of what you've done for us. The cross is the hope and the cross is the answer and Jesus gives us the power. Holy Spirit, would you come down on us now? God, as the church worldwide would celebrate Pentecost today, God, we just recognize that we need your second Pentecost to come again, God, that we need your spirit to fill us today to embolden us and empower us, to not only speak your grace, God, but to speak your truth about what it means to be an image bearer of you. God, what it means to live as your kids in your kingdom, that our privilege and our comfort, God, are not for us alone. God, but they are to share with all of humanity that we could be people like Christ who fulfilled Abraham's promise to be one who is blessed, to bless the world. God, may we be people who restore others to you, not in our own power, but in your power. May we walk in your forgiveness and love. We know that this is going to bring up hardship, God. We know it's going to bring up shame. We know it's going to have to include conversations of privilege and power. But God, we commit ourselves to do the hard work to listen before we talk, to seek to understand before we seek to explain. God, hear us now. Speak to us about who we are and whose we are and who our brothers and sisters are. Amen.